Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation and our world. Hey, today is our final day of looking at the churches in Revelation. Now, there's seven churches and seven letters and you've worked out we haven't done seven weeks. So there's a couple of letters that we haven't spoken to. Encourage you to go and read them. But before you go today, out the front here, um, I've written a letter to our church. So all of the campus pastors over the last couple of weeks thought, what a great opportunity as we're looking at the letters that Jesus wrote to his church for us in our campuses to write a letter of what's on our heart to our local congregation. So before you go today, I'd love you to come and grab one of those letters, take it home, read it. Really, it's just, I say in it, my words don't carry the weight of Jesus, but God's place is here together, and so I invite you into some of the things that are prayers on my heart for who God's calling us to be in the future. And so I'd love you to get that. Um, don't worry, we're about to read a letter where Jesus says that if you remain lukewarm, I'll spew you out of your mouth. There's nothing like that in my letter, okay? So make sure you grab one of those on the way out, take it home. I'd love you to read it. And it's really an invitation for us to come together in prayer and ask God to do something good in our church. But today is the final letter that is recorded in Revelation chapter 3 and is to a church in Laodicea. And uh, I'm just going to jump straight in and read it to us this morning. This is probably uh, the most well-known and well-quoted of the letters. And so there might be some things in here that some of us will be familiar with. For some of us, it might be our first reading of this today. But Jesus has got some really important things to say to our church through this letter today, I reckon. So let's jump in at Revelation 3 verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot or you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Encouraging day in church this day. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put in your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. To those who are victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every one of these letters starts with a brand new revelation of Jesus. And I reckon for some of us, the most important thing we're going to hear over this last month is that Jesus is bigger than we've sometimes given him credit for or we've allowed him to be in our life. Maybe some of us here today are sitting and we're overwhelmed and we're nervous and we're worried about the future and and the, the political landscape and maybe the decision of our nation last night has only added to that fear and anxiety. But Jesus keeps wanting to say to us things like this, I am the Amen. In other words, I am the full stop, I am the last, I am the one that stands over everything. Everything that I declare is the final word. He then goes on to say, I am the ruler of God's creation. 
What's he want to say to you this morning? Whatever you look at in the landscape of the world in which you live, whatever fills your heart with anxiety and fear, it's okay, I'm bigger than that. Some of us actually need to lift our eyes and see God as bigger than the circumstances that create anxiety in our hearts right now. And the first thing he says to this church before he gets into a fairly stinging rebuke is this, I am the amen. I mean, that's a statement, isn't it? You, you don't want to call yourself the amen. Amen's the thing that we always finish prayers with because we go, it's done, there's the statement, there is the finish. And Jesus says, well, I am the amen. And for some of us, I just want to encourage your hearts today that we've been overwhelmed with the anxiety of everything rolling around, our world, our state, our city. Jesus wants to say to you this morning, I am the amen. Lift your eyes, you're on the victor's side. And we can be overwhelmed and distracted and feel like, you know, everything is just coming like this tidal wave that's going to overwhelm us. But Jesus constantly wants to encourage his church that nothing will prevail against it. He said that 2,000 years ago. The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. He's proved to be true. Wars and governments and dictators and other religious groups and people that have tried to shut God down have not been successful. The church of God moves and grows in influence, in significance, because the amen, the ruler of creation, is the one that stands at the head of who we are. Some of us need to hear that this morning. But then he goes on to a fairly stinging rebuke. But before I get there, I want to take us a little bit further into the letter where Jesus says this. Jesus says this to his church after he's just told them they're lukewarm, he's going to spit them out of their mouth, they're naked, they're blind, they're rah, rah, rah. He says this, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. You know, as a parent, one of the greatest struggles that I have and one of the greatest challenges that I find in caring for my kids is that I have such a desire for them to do well that sometimes in my attempt to do that, I come across as harsh, sometimes maybe grumpy and cranky. My kids have told me recently that I'm getting old and cranky. But sometimes the things I do with my kids aren't born out of a desire to push them down, but are actually born out of desire to lift them up. So deep is my love for my children and so deep is my concern for them that sometimes I rebuke and discipline them, not because I want to be harsh on them, but because I want them to do well. And Jesus here brings this stinging rebuke to his church. But the thing we have to understand about this rebuke is it isn't born out of a God who just wants to bring pain to people and point out all their faults. It's always born out of a desire to bring hope and healing and a new future. And so Jesus brings a rebuke, but then he says this, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. In other words, church in Laodicea, I love you so deeply and that's why I'm telling you these things. We live in a time, I reckon, where we run away from criticism, rebuke, critique, being confronted with stuff. Some of us have, in our culture and some of us in the church, have mistaken some things that are actually for our benefit to actually be things of detriment. We've mistaken loving rebuke for judgment. Someone comes and they say, hey, you know what, I actually think you're making some decisions that are poor for your life that are not in step with what God would want for you. Oh, you're just so judgmental. We've just wiped off loving rebuke and we've labelled it with judgmentalism. If you want to label everything that someone speaks into your life as judgmental, 
The church has been labelled at times as judgmental because it is judgmental, but at other times it's been labelled as judgmental because in its heart and desire for people to flourish in the way of God, it's addressed some stuff that are confronting. God's, people aren't always judging you when they call something out in your life. They're actually bringing love to actually help you flourish. But we've mistaken loving rebuke with judgment. We've mistaken discipline for punishment. They might sound similar, but I reckon there's a subtle difference. Discipline is actually growing something new in us so we do better. Whereas punishment and the way sometimes we see God is he's just there with a stick, just wanting to bring pain. Sometimes we've mistaken correction and challenge for criticism. You know, we live in a culture that seeks affirmation, acceptance and agreement on everything. If you don't agree with me, you obviously don't like me. And we've lost the capacity to receive rebuke as an act of love. And as an act of love that transforms us, corrects us, and sets us up for a future of flourishing and success. Don't mistake loving rebuke for judgment. Because sometimes God puts people in our life that wants to call stuff out in us because we're headed down a path that is actually detrimental to us and to our future. Young people, as you get into relationships, as people want to speak into that and give you some wisdom around how to navigate that well and do that healthily, don't wipe them out as judgmental. Listen to the wisdom because often it comes from a heart of love. Yes, sometimes people do bring judgment. But let's not label everything that's rebuke as judgment. Jesus rebukes his church, but he's very clear that it's born out of love and he wants to give them a way out and a way back. You know, as a young preacher, I hated when people reviewed my messages. Actually, I learnt the people in church that liked everything I said and smiled. Didn't matter what I say, didn't matter if it was wrong, didn't matter if it was heretical, didn't matter if it was poor theology. If I said it, they'd smile. And so I just pick them out in the congregation and stare at them. They always thought I was preaching to them, but I just love the look on their face. Some of you have the worst resting faces in the world. Some of you just... And masks were a blessing for some of you because I didn't have to look at the rest of your face like just growling at everything that I said just because apparently I've got a really bad resting face. But I just hated review because I personalise it. And when Jason, who's our current senior pastor came on our team, he started to implement a more robust a process in the early days of reviewing our preaching. And it was back when we were one church in one location. And so if you were preaching, the entire pastoral team would be sitting in the first couple of rows listening to you. Now we're spread out all over the place. It's a little bit harder. But in those early days, we'd come together on a Tuesday and we'd look at, as we still do now, we review our services and ask, you know, how can we keep adding value and make these things uh, really work when we gather and we come together and there'd be this uh, review of the Sunday, which ultimately, if you preached, you know it was going to come down to a review of your message. And, and I heard some things in there that I didn't like. I heard words like this. You didn't do enough work in reading and researching the context of the scripture, and so your application wasn't quite true to the intent of the passage. It's a really nice way of saying you needed to work a bit harder on the theology. You know what I heard when people said that? He's a bad preacher. Someone would say, you know, you had some good content, but you structured it in a way that was really confusing. People didn't understand what you were trying to tell us. And all I heard was, he's a bad preacher. Or someone would say, there was a great story you told at the start of your message. 
funniest 10 minutes that you've preached all year, but it was completely irrelevant to your message and made church go 10 minutes longer than it needed to. And I heard, he's a bad preacher. All of those things, probably not exactly word for word, but are things that I heard over those season of review. But I personalise it all because I just took it as criticism, not as people that are actually a heart to help me get better. The problem was I was looking at all the smiling people that were actually just enduring some of my messages rather than actually helping me get better at what I do. But whatever gift God's given you, you should find a way to grow in it. Now, I'm not standing here saying that my review days are done because I'm sure there's plenty more for me to learn. Um, please, please don't all rush to bring me that. <laughs> but I learned through that process that review and rebuke and instruction and discipline are often born out of love. And if we learn to lean into it and listen to it, we can grow, we can become more effective, we can start to flourish, we can walk away from things that are destructive for us. You see, we often fall into this trap of choosing what we label as grace, because that's what we're meant to be, isn't it, as Christians? Full of love and grace over rebuke. German uh, theologian from many years ago, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrote this. He said, cheap grace is sold on the marketplace like cheap jacks wares. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions of fixing limits. It's grace without price, it's grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance and because it's been paid, everything can be had for nothing. So the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy that which the merchant will sell all his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye because it causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for the door at which a man must knock. In other words, to summarize, sometimes we think that grace comes without pain, but Grace is a gift that offers transformation, but it costs everything to Jesus to be able to offer it to us. We should never treat it cheaply, and we should never mistake loving rebuke for judgment. And so Jesus says to his church, I love you so much, it's why I'm telling you these things. And the rebuke to the church in Laodicea is stinging. Let me remind you of Jesus' words. I know your deeds that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve the put in your eyes so that you can see. 
when Jesus spoke these words and when these words were given to the church and laid to see, there was a whole bunch of imagery in these letters, in the words that came with particular power to the church that Jesus was speaking at. Uh, lukewarm water was, uh, it, water sticks with you. Years ago, we, uh, as a family, were doing a Central Australia road trip. Our last stop before we went into, truly into the centre where there was very limited resources around water and other supplies was in Winton in Western Queensland. Winton's a really cool place. If, you ever, if you've never been there and you ever get to go there, great place to visit. But the water is horrible. The water's drawn from balls in the Great Artesian Basin and as it comes to the surface, it comes at near boiling point and it runs through all of these almost like radiator systems that cool the water down so it's consumable for humans. Brings it down to around 35, 40 degrees, I think. But on its way to the surface, it captures sulfur gas. And so when it arrives, it just smells like rotten egg. It's, it's awful. And so we get to Winton and we're expecting to fill all of our water tanks and all of our water jugs because this is the last stop before we head in and we turn the tap on and we're like, no one warned us about the water. It is awful. Now, apparently, if you fill a jug and leave it on your bench for half an hour, the, the sulfur kind of dissipates out of the water and it's beautiful water to drink. But no one told me that either. And I just knew that I was going to put it straight from the tap into a tank and there was no way for this smell to escape. So we just decided to cut our losses and go with that that we already had. And you'd shower in this stuff and it was just... If you've ever experienced water that captures sulfur, it's like showering in rotten eggs. It's, it's, that's the way people describe the smell. I still remember it. It sticks in my mind. It sticks in my nostrils. There's something un when, about water when it's unpalatable that sticks with you. Now, Laodicea had unpalatable water. Jesus wasn't just talking to a church going, you know when the coffee's lukewarm and we all hate it? and you don't want to drink it, well, that's what you guys like. No, no, no. This water analogy was much deeper than that. Laodicea was a, a city that's now in modern-day Turkey that didn't have a great water supply or a um, regular water supply. And so Laodicea had the water fed to the city from two directions. To the north, there were hot springs, and, and they were, it was mineral-filled water. And so they built aqueducts down to the city of Laodicea to allow the water that was coming out of the hot springs to be brought down to Laodicea for consumption of the populace. Now, it was mineral rich, and so you can still see the old aqueducts that have like the coating of the minerals that were deposited along them as the water traveled. But as the hot water from the springs came down to Laodicea, it started to cool. It didn't get cold, but by the time it got to the city, it was lukewarm. But it wasn't just the water from the north that was feeding the city of Laodicea. To the south at a place called Colossae, you've heard of Colossians, Colossae had mountains that was feeding like icy cold water into the system. And again, Laodicea uh, got water delivered from the south that came into the city. But by the time it too had travelled across the pipes that brought it into the city through the Turkish sun, it was lukewarm. The people in Laodicea were used to drinking unpalatable, lukewarm water. They knew what it was to have water that was distasteful. And so Jesus picks this analogy and says, you know the water that you drink here, how it's not cold, it's not hot, it's not nice? That's how I see you as a church right now. You've just lost your edge, you've lost your taste. What I see, the sin that you embrace, 
the lifestyle that you live, the things that you allow in your church, they're distasteful for me. Sometimes we've turned this, this letter into a sense of like a spiritual posture, whether, whether we're really passionate or visibly passionate. But now Jesus says it's just what I observe in the way you do your Christianity here in Laodicea, it's distasteful. You're lukewarm. It's just, it makes me want to vomit the same way that the water, when you drink it, makes you want to vomit. That's how I feel about the way you're living out your faith in this city. And then he goes on and he says, you think you're rich, but you're really poor. In AD 61, before this letter was written, there was an earthquake that wiped out significant cities and centers through this part of the world. We spoke about it uh, when we talked about the, the earthquake and the pillar. But there was earthquake that went through in AD 61 and, and later C was a city that refused help from the empire. They didn't take the government handouts. Now, in that time, that would have been something that was a, a badge of honor and a badge of pride because it essentially said, we're doing all right here in Laodicea. We don't need your money. We've got this covered. And so they took the renovation work and the rebuild work under their own steam because it was a city of great wealth. But Jesus says, you think you're wealthy, but the way I see your church is you're poor. And then he says, you're blind. Something else about Laodicea, it was a medical center of the time. And one of the things that Laodicea was known for was this special Phrygian eye salve that actually people would travel from great distances to get a hold of this ointment to rub in their eyes to deal with their eye conditions. And so they were known to helping people see, yet Jesus says, that's what your city's known for. You know what I know you by church? You're blind. And finally, he says, and you're naked too. Once again, the city of Laodicea was known for these special sheep that, uh, that had a black woolen coat. And the black woolen coat was turned into wonderful garments. And, and it was part of the trade of the city that bought the city great wealth. They were known for their black garments. And so Jesus says, yep, you're known for that. It makes you special. It makes you wealthy. But I think you're naked. See, the water that was fed to the city, the eye salve that the city sold, the black garments that the city manufactured, all of these things, Jesus picks up and says, you think you're rich, you think you're helping people see, you think you're clothing people. All I see in church is lukewarm, blind, naked, and poor. And so Jesus' invitation to his church is this. I want to open your eyes. I want to clothe you. And it's, it's, no, it's no coincidence that Jesus says, I want to clothe you in white, different to what they knew. I want to clothe you in white. It meant I want to clothe you in pure clothing. And I want to refine you in the fire. It's a fairly stinging rebuke from Jesus, but there's one other really significant observation in this letter that I want to make. In recent weeks, we've talked about a number of the other cities that in, in the start of the letter, Jesus says, last week it was, I know where Satan has his throne. And the context, the context to the letter that he writes to the church in Pergamum is that they're, they're living under violent, oppressive rule where the sword was used to take down those that stood in opposition to the empire. And so a lot of the letters start talking about the external threats to the church. In some churches, the external threats are the threats of false teachers and false doctrine. In some, it's actual empirical, outside, violent oppression. But to the church in Laodicea, Jesus doesn't identify one threat. We don't get a sense that they were confronted 
with, with uh, a violent oppression. We don't get the sense that they were confronted with false teachers. Jesus doesn't identify a threat. And I want to say this, sometimes the hardest time for us in our faith isn't when we're persecuted, but it's when we're comfortable. Jesus says this to his church, you say, I am rich. I don't need a thing. So the greatest threat that Jesus identifies in his church in the city of Laodicea isn't violent Roman oppression, isn't false teachers and the Nicolaitans, but is their own comfort and self-reliance. You say, I am rich and don't need a thing. And it's at this point, I reckon, the letter to the church in Laodicea becomes very pertinent for a church that gathers in the outer suburbs, well, the northern suburbs of the Gold Coast, in a very comfortable, wealthy, affluent nation. Because the greatest threats to our faith aren't usually external. The external things, Jesus says you can hurt your body, but they can't take your soul and your spirit. The things that are the greatest threats to our faith aren't external. They're not the threats of culture, of power, of violence. We make those things big because we, we fear for what they mean. And I'm not downplaying them, but Jesus identifies in his church that the greatest threats to our faith are things like wealth, comfort, self-reliance, self-sufficiency, apathy, and complacency. And maybe the greatest threat to your faith and living a dynamic relationship of following Jesus isn't that you're worried if you're going to have your home next week. It's that you're, that you're just more worried about how you can expand your kingdom and make it bigger. Because the greatest threats to our faith aren't external. They're the ones that come when we get so comfortable. I want to take us back to uh, the story of the Exodus. God rescues a nation of people. The people of Israel have lived for 400 years under the violent oppression of the Egyptians. And the pharaohs used to use them as slave labor. And God does this incredible thing. I don't have time to tell you all about the Exodus, but God takes an entire nation out of slavery, leads them to their own land. They spend 40 years wandering through desert wastelands on their way there, but eventually they get to the place. It was called the promised land because it was a, a, a land of agricultural, uh, just the, the ground was awesome for growing crops. It was flourishing. It was a great place to live. It was a great place to build life. And so often the promised land was called the land that was flowing with milk and honey. And when you lived in a desert and you'd lived as slaves in someone else's land, that's a pretty good place to be. But as they move into the promised land, God gets the people together and he says this to them. He says in Deuteronomy 8, Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out of the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. It's almost like a modern day rendering of the land that we live in. But then God says, when you have eaten and you are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land that he's given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm on giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, 
And when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and, you all have, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Verse 17, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. In other words, you're going to walk into a land of abundance, a land of comfort, a land of wealth, a land of opportunity. And it's in those moments your faith is at its greatest risk. Because it's so easy for our hearts to create a narrative that says, look at the kingdom that I've created. Look how well I've done. I've got all this because I've worked hard. All those poor people, if they just learnt some of the skills that I had, they'd be okay too. Don't get sucked into this false narrative that you're doing well because it's all about you. And God says to these people, you live in a land of abundance and that's where your faith's going to be at the greatest threat because you're just going to start to believe the narrative and buy into the, the, the mail that it's all about you. And in those moments, I don't want you to forget where you've come from and I don't want you to forget who got you there and I don't want to forget the one who is generous that gives you this blessing. And so to the church in Laodicea, you think you're rich, but you're poor. You're blind, you're naked, and you're lukewarm. But because I love you, church, I want to rebuke you and I'm going to call you back to repentance. I want to call you back to being my people that live on the cutting edge. Not this comfortable handout mentality. Not this comfortable, how do I get more? Not this comfortable giving people and the poor and the church and others the scraps of what we have so that our kingdom can increase and my comfort can be greater. But giving everything to the one who gave everything for you. I wonder if Jesus would echo these words to us today. Because if we don't see our need for Jesus, he just simply becomes someone that we jump on the journey with because he's a good bloke or he's a companion or we like to have him just close enough so when it all falls apart, we've got someone to pray to. Ever do that? Ever notice your prayer life goes up when it all starts falling apart? Or you know, prayer life needs to be just as vital when it's all going well so that our hearts always aligned to praising the one that gave it to us, not just begging him to sort it out when it all falls down. Pray prayers of gratitude as much as you pray prayers of need and request. But I wonder if Jesus would say these words to us today. He doesn't just want to be a companion to us. He wants to be the amen. Because that is who he is. And so there's a final picture in this book and it's this. I get the band to come join me. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. Final thing I want to say to us today, and this is really important as we look to our future, is that a church is only effective and powerful when the owner of the house is on the inside of his house. Let's not grow a church where we lock Jesus on the outside. And Jesus really brings this rebuke to try and wake the church from its slumber. Have you been woken up in a moment you weren't expecting it? I had some tradesmen come to my house last week and 
They always promise a time. We'll be there between 7.30 and 9. We've got a job beforehand. Well, I've never finished a job before 7.30 in the morning, so I thought, well, I'll be closer to 9. I've got time to get up, have my coffee, get my breakfast and get dressed. 7 a.m., someone knocks on the door. I'm like, well, obviously they didn't go to the first job, but apparently they get up earlier than that and they were already done. Now, I wasn't ready. I was still lying in my bed, if I'm completely honest, at 10 to 7. So I did the quickest run to make myself look presentable like I'd been up for hours doing things around the house before I got to the door. Have you been woken up and that jolt that just gets you going? I reckon that's what Jesus wants to do here. He just wants to jolt his church into action. And the invitation he gives is this. Make sure I'm always at the center. If you lock me out, I'm, I'm always going to be pursuing you. I'm not running away. I'm not criticizing you or rebuking you to make you feel bad. There's always a way back. And right now, lady, to see in church, you've locked me on the outside, but I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. I just need you to hear it and listen to me and let me back in. Let me be the center of all you do. If we don't let Jesus be the center of this place, we'll be a great group of people, have a nice time together, run some cool camps, have some fun on Friday nights, enjoy some coffee on a Sunday, but we'll never live at the cutting edge of mission that Jesus would have for his church. We are the people that he has called to actually take the message of the gospel and the kingdom into our community, to see lives transformed, to see the poor find hope and healing practically and spiritually. Let's not just be a comfortable social club. Let's always make sure that Jesus is on the inside. The greatest threat to our church isn't all the outside influences that we can get caught up in looking at and getting anxious about. The greatest threat to us being the church that Jesus calls us to be is when we get complacent, apathetic, lazy and start to buy into our own narrative that we're doing well because we're pretty good people. Gateway Ormo. He is the amen. He is the one who was dead, but is now alive. He is the one with a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. All the pictures of revelation. This is the God who wants to lead us and guide us and direct us and be at the center of all that we do. And he stands on the outside and he calls out and he knocks. And he says, can I be right in the middle of my house? Maybe you individually have gotten really complacent in your faith. Faith has just become another little thing that you've added to your very full life of doing a whole bunch of stuff that you care about. And this is a good thing to keep close. Jesus doesn't just want to be on the sidelines of your life. He wants to be in the midst of everything that you do. He wants to be the center of all that you do. Maybe you've bought into your own narrative that you're doing well because you're just smarter, harder working, more articulate, more entrepreneurial, whatever. Do you take time to stand back and just be thankful that maybe God's blessed you with where you are and maybe he's blessed you so that you can actually use that to bless others rather than just to glorify yourself and you know, talk your own story up? Don't let comfort complacency, apathy become the thing that robs you of a vital relationship of loving Jesus serving Jesus following Jesus and being part of the church that he calls us to be maybe for some of us today there is an individual response that we need to do I don't want to just give you a, a, a simple out 
I've come, let someone pray for you. That prayer is an awesome thing, but maybe there's something you've got to adjust in your life. Maybe there's an adjustment you need to make to actually make this work. I just want to finish today by praying for us together. So can we jump on our feet? I'm going to pray a prayer that's about us, Gateway Ormo, and who God's calling us to be and where he desires to be in our midst. If, if you want to pray this prayer along with me when I finish, why don't you just give a hearty amen? So as you do it, just remember who is the one that says they are the amen. So Lord Jesus, we stand here today and we thank you for the encouragement of your words. Your words written to a real church at a real time filled with real people, but words that are just as strong and important and pertinent to us today as they've ever been. God, we, we forget sometimes about the nation that we live in and the wealth and the affluence and the comfort and the freedoms and the opportunities that have been presented to all of us. Lord, we take for granted the chance to have our kids educated and to know that there's always somewhere we can go so food can be on our table. The chance to pursue our dreams, the chance to have our own shelter. Lord, for clean water that runs from every tap that we turn on. For flushing toilets. God, for income and jobs, and even when we don't have them, for a, a government system that will give us something to sustain us. God, we can lose sight of all of that. Lord, we, we live in a really lucky nation. And most of us, even though we don't like to admit it, and we whinge a lot sometimes, are really blessed. Father, I want to pray that that would never be the thing that builds a complacency and an apathy in us, that just sidelines you and just sees you as a nice companion for the journey. Jesus, you are the amen. The greatest call that you've given to every one of us, no matter where we are in life, is to actually walk in step and in sync with you, to keep our eyes permanently fixed on you, to be obedient to the call. And God, sometimes in your generosity, you let us do it, enjoying the comforts of the world in which we live. But God, for some of us here, you might want to put a finger on us and say, I need you to walk away from all of that because I've got another task and assignment that I need from you. God, for those of us that are constantly distracted by all the noise outside, let us lift our hearts and our eyes again and be reminded of whose side we're on and who we, it is that we worship. The first and last, the Alpha and the Omega, the amen, the ruler of all creation. You are our God. You are the one who we serve and worship. We have nothing to fear. Lift for us, Jesus, our picture of who you are. Call our hearts back to a place of just living on the cutting edge of all that you are doing and all that you're calling us to be. Don't let our hearts get distracted or overwhelmed or filled with pride. And Lord, protect us, your church, against complacency. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus, the Amen. Together we say, Amen. amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au.